Hello, today is November 19th, 2020. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Greg Healy. Greg is a longtime family medicine physician here in St. Lawrence County, New York. He is also the author of the column Healy on Health in the former St. Lawrence Plain Dealer, which until last year was one of our longest running local newspapers. He is the physician for one of the nursing homes in our county, and he is a survivor of COVID-19. Greg, welcome. Thank you, Al. The COVID-19 pandemic is now raging in our county. Today, roughly 40 new cases were reported in the area in and around our county, and our county's largest hospital, Canton Potsdam Hospital, is at capacity. Well, what kinds of steps do you think our state needs to take now to control the virus here in the North Country? Well, we, we need to confirm what we were doing before, which is mask wearing by everyone. I think, you know, we have to reemphasize the importance of hand sanitizing. I think we have to take a serious look again at the areas where we know COVID is spread, bars and restaurants. And my heart goes out to the good people who, who run the bars and restaurants, but I think we have to stop doing that. I think we have to go back to take out meals. I really believe that we as a society should indemnify owners of bars and restaurants so that they don't lose their businesses, don't, don't lose their livelihood. So I really hope we get a more comprehensive relief package for those people. I also am skeptical about school. As you and I know this, I mean, many people feel that their kids need to go to school and certainly people need the daycare that school provides. But I'm skeptical about bringing all these people, not just the, the students, but the teachers and custodians and everyone else to central areas. Um, I think that has to take a long look at again. I know that New York City is just gone all remote for their schools again because of the increase and I fear that we need to do the same. Uh, I think the colleges and universities are taking the right step by sending their kids home at Thanksgiving and having them not come back and perhaps they should delay the start of the next semester uh, for a couple of months until we have a chance to vaccinate everyone. I think also with the holidays coming up I've told all my patients, I've told my own family we're not going to be getting together. You know, we're going to talk on the phone or Skype or whatever we can do. But I think we have to keep it tight for another few months. We're in the final stages of this. There's a vaccine coming. Um, losing people now is like losing soldiers and more after the armistice has been negotiated. It's just, it's just terrible if anybody we lose now. As a member of our local COVID-19 inpatient treatment team, I think a lot these days about bed availability. Like any rural county, even our largest hospitals have limited surge capacity. And one of my biggest fears is that in addition to the COVID-19 outbreak that we already have, we may also have on top of this, a large outbreak in one of the nursing homes or prisons in our region. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, but at your nursing home, you were able to contain several small COVID-19 outbreaks earlier in the pandemic. What are some ways that we might help prevent a larger and possibly catastrophic nursing home or prison outbreak in our area? Well, we were very fortunate, I believe, in our nursing home. Because of where we are in the, in the North Country, 
the initial wave of virus was a little slow in getting to us. So we already had the, the nursing home locked down. In fact, we locked down a week before the state mandated that we locked down. Uh, we knew that our population in the nursing home certainly didn't have the virus. So that it was clearly visitors or staff who would bring it to them. And very early on, we argued that our staff should be tested for a good month before it was mandated. We argued that our staff should be tested at least twice a week to make sure they weren't carrying the virus and bringing it to our patients. As you may know, uh, since mid-April, uh, every nursing home staff person has to be checked at least uh, weekly, and many of them twice weekly, to make sure they're not carrying the virus. So this gives us a chance to find those staff members who are asymptomatic uh, and would inadvertently uh, bring the virus to our residents. We've had a strict no visitor policy. It's been crushing for our residents. You can imagine the toll that it's taken uh, on our residents in the nursing home and the families. Um, families are visiting through a window. Uh, they're coming up to the first floor window of our rooms and, and even then talking over the phone to their loved ones. And imagine the implications for my poor patients there who they know are nearing the end of their life. They don't have that many years left to go and they're already in an assisted living facility or a nursing home. So the only thing that gives their life meaning is the interaction with the people they love. So they have paid a heavy, heavy price to keep themselves and everyone else safe. Um, I think it's worked. I really want this to be over for the sake of these residents. And they are suffering. You know, you're saying you can't go out to a bar with your buddies. Well, this lady who's only got a couple of years left to live can't see her family. So I don't have a whole lot of sympathy when you can't go out to a restaurant. I consider us, Greg, lucky. 80% of rural counties are in what's called the red zone today, uh, which means that in the last week, they've had more than 100 cases per 100,000 people uh, in their counties. And we are actually going to be a red zone county this week. But until now, we've been able to not be a red zone county. Um, we have not had a large nursing home or prison outbreak, but we know that many of our colleagues in rural America, our fellow physicians in rural America are dealing with exactly that. Uh, small, under-resourced hospitals, hotspots that have broken out far more demand than, than supply when it comes to beds uh, and medical resources in general. So imagine for a moment that we were to have a large prison outbreak here in the North Country, and it were to overwhelm one or several of our hospitals. I want you to give our listeners a sense of how that plays out for rural physicians like you and me to tell our listeners what that would look like on the ground. Well, we're, we're, we're devastated by that because we have to treat the people who are sick. Uh, the COVID population often requires very intensive care, oxygen, sometimes uh, artificial ventilation with ventilators. Uh, they require a lot of uh, nursing hours because 
going into their rooms, coming out of the rooms, everything that we do takes a lot of time as we practice isolation procedures. So it pretty much shoves to the side anything else going on. And, and you see this already around the world that death toll from other diseases like heart attack, stroke, congestive heart failure, pneumonia, um, that death toll is rising because we can't get to the people with the other diseases because we are overwhelmed by the COVID population. And many of the COVID population are afraid to come in. And so by the time they actually present to us, they are desperately ill. And some of the opportunities we might have had for early interventions uh, are lost already. Uh, we're seeing that. I see that to some extent already in our county. Um, people were kind of convincing them that maybe they need to come in and get their labs done and, and get uh, checked up for the, the chronic illnesses. So not only are we overwhelmed just trying to manage the COVID patients, but our hospital is a pretty busy place and it's often at capacity even without COVID. So what happens to all those other people? Where, where are they going? And it's not like there's any reserve anywhere else. We can't just call up Syracuse or Burlington and say, hey, we're, we're full. Because they're full too. It's going to be a disaster. And it's a shame because it didn't have to be this way. Uh, unfortunately, the, the whole mask wearing and social isolation uh, uh, idea became politicized. I, I, I really don't get that. But I see it every day. I encounter it every day in my office. My people uh, begrudgingly wear masks, and you can tell that they're irritated that they were, were requiring you to wear a mask when they come into the office. I have to constantly remind them to pull the mask up over their nose because if they don't have it up over their nose, it's not doing much good. And this is where rural America has really taken a pounding because, as we know, politically, rural America tends to be conservative tends to be um, on the side of the current president. Um, and they're paying the price for that loyalty. Uh, this has nothing to do with whether you're Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. Uh, we've said this over and over and over again. I had people in my office before the election who said, oh, don't worry, Dr. Healy, November 3rd, this is all gonna be over because it's all made up. It's not made up. We have now lost as many people killed by this virus as were killed in combat in World War II. And that took four years. That's how many have died already. And, and it's real, we're not making it up. The six people in our county who died, they died of COVID. They didn't die of something else and we just made it up. I don't get paid any extra money for looking after COVID patients. There's so many lies and so much misdirection, misinformation about all this. And it's really impacted the rural areas much more than the, than the impact in the urban areas. What should the public health role be for clinicians in the pandemic, both in general and in rural America? Well, it's absolutely crucial. You know, there's, there's a lot still left to learn, but we know the virus better than we used to. We know how it transmits, how it's asymptomatic to a lot of people. We, we're getting to know the population that's at most risk. We now have a vaccine. So we pretty much have the science part of it, the, the more esoteric research part of it is worked out. And now we're down 
to where the rubber hits the road. Now we have to actually get this vaccine out and get it into people. And this is precisely what I do every day. It's what countless primary care physicians do every stinking day. So we could, we could really help with this. We can tell you right now what you need to do. Do you need me to get a uh, ultra low temperature freezer? Because I can get one. I have the staff who are trained, ready to go. We could immunize 100 people a day right in our office. We could do more than that. I could probably immunize 200 people a day right in my office. Um, many other uh, offices and clinics could do the same. Let us talk to you. Let us figure out where the trucks need to go. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. This is, this is a very logistical, uh, on-the-ground problem. And give us millions of doses of these vaccines, we'll get them out there. I feel like just let us do our thing. If you'd given us these tests, if you'd let, if, if President Trump had released these tests weeks earlier instead of pulling them up, we could have been testing people more. And where are the tests now? Like, how come we can't get them? I have the machines, but you can't give me the reagents to do the testing. It makes me wonder where they are. But this is the kind of thing when you don't have the primary care people uh, at those tables, at those meetings, um, there'll be no insight. I agree. And I actually wrote a letter to President-elect Biden and his advisory board, which I'll talk about in a bit, uh, which says something very similar, actually. Um, beyond the impact we can have uh, it, with our patients individually, we can all make a big impact with people who know and trust us. I'm concerned by the lack of voices from rural America and from working clinicians that people in rural America are hearing. I, I'd like to see more clinicians on television in their local communities, um, being having newspapers give them a voice in their local newspapers. And, and, and here in the North Country, we have that. I've, I've been writing in North Country now. I, I wrote a, a letter to the community that was quickly published and which I really appreciated. Uh, you've been always very uh, vocal um, and active in the community and a bit of a, a, an excellent communicator with the community through the many columns, columns you've written. Uh, you also wrote about your experience with COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Andrew Williams, our, the president of our Board of Health, has uh, uh, spoken to the community a lot, has, uh, been, uh, has gotten a lot of press. So we're, we're a county where I think clinicians have had a local voice. And recently I was looking at a, a set of data. It showed by county across the country how rural a particular county was and how good a job that county was doing at uh, adhering to public health measures. Of course, there must be flaws in these data, but our county came out as, by rural standards, not doing that badly, actually, as far as how seriously we've been taking the virus. Uh, so as bad as it may seem, it, it can get worse. And I think, and I hope at least, that some of the voices people have heard from local clinicians who are who, who they know and trust, I, I hope at least that played a role in um, whatever successes we've had in adhering to public health guidelines. Um, so this is a long-winded question, but, but in addition to the one-on-one -on -one impact that we have as 
positions with individual patients. What kinds of local media roles would you like to see clinicians playing in the pandemic? Well, you know, we have models where, for instance, CNN has Sanjay Gupta, uh, albeit he's a neurosurgeon, but I like Sanjay and he does a pretty good job, I think, communicating and he's, he's bright, he's, he's, he's a doctor, he's, he's well-trained and he dives in, he gets the information, he's, he's good at that and he's a good communicator. And I think every one of our media outlets should do the same thing. They should have a physician or clinician or a group of them to call on to interpret some of the information coming their way uh, and put it in a language that the non-medical person will understand. You know, that's that's what we hope for from any profession, you know, whether it's a, an accountant doing your taxes and your lawyer helping you with a real estate deal, uh, a teacher at your school, not only do you expect them to be good at their job, but you expect them to be able to explain their area of expertise in ways that you can understand. And I think, you know, most Rural clinicians can do that because we have to do it all the time. Uh, we're one-on-one with our patients all the time. So I, I think you're right. I think every media outlet should have one or more physicians that they can regularly consult and, and have them uh, report to the public matters concerning medicine and public health. Um, so let's talk about rural America and its healthcare system and having a voice amongst the elites of American medicine today. There are no members of rural America on President-elect Biden's COVID-19 advisory board. And as I said, I recently wrote a letter to President-elect Biden and the board expressing this and other, expressing this and other concerns. So in late, 2020, in late 2020, with so many rural patients already affected and dead from COVID-19, how do we create a voice for rural medicine within the elites of American medicine? How can it be done? Well, one of the advantages we have here, and and I think one of the reasons you're here, Al, is we're just far enough away. You know, they almost forget that we're here. Uh, I had the same experience in Canada, the little towns of Smith Falls and Perth, sandwiched in Eastern Ontario, and, and we had two big regional centers in Ottawa and Kingston, and and they knew we were there, but they kind of didn't care a lot about what we were doing. And Toronto had no idea where we were. Of course, if you live in Ontario, it's like Toronto is to Ontario what New York City is to New York State. And, and we're in that situation. So, so sometimes the only way you get you get ahead is if they if they ignore you, if they don't know about you, and then you can go ahead and build something worthwhile, uh, which is sad. And and I agree with you. You know. There's so much that can be accomplished in all these small communities around uh, America if they were given any sort of nurturing, any sort of encouragement, any sort of opportunity to look after their people. You know, I, I'm a family doctor. I, I went to a good medical school, University of Toronto, but I just wanted to be a family doctor because that's what I like to do. I like to help people. I like the feeling I get from helping people every day. And I have that experience of seeing people every day. And all science ever is really is the ability to observe, the ability to see what hasn't been seen before. 
And by shutting us out, by shutting out those of us on the ground, uh, it's really slowing down, the, I think, the pace of advancement of, of medical knowledge. That if you would let us get involved, we see stuff every day. We, we feel it with our patients. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't know what it's going to take. Maybe we're just going to have to go pound on the gates of the city until they let us in. I'm going to change in the final few questions here. You're a survivor of COVID-19. You've written about your experience with COVID for our community. Can you describe it for our listeners? Well, I think I had a fairly typical experience with it. Of course, I'm aware of the symptoms. And on a Tuesday evening, I had a little bit of a fever. I actually took my temperature, which I would barely do. It was 100.5. So just barely enough to call it a fever. But I didn't feel unwell. The next day, I had a runny nose, but I had this awful smell in my nose. I had a, a smell that was kind of a cross between ammonia and turpentine. It was just chemical, rotten, stinking smell. Couldn't get it out of my nose. That only lasted about eight hours. Uh, by the next day, I felt fine. And I would say Thursday and Friday of that week, maybe I went to bed a little early, but that was about it. No, no more fever. The smell was gone, no more runny nose, no cough, no sore throat. I, of course, took myself out of work immediately, just in case I had it. I sent a, a swab uh, for my nasopharynx uh, the day after I got symptoms. It came back negative for COVID. Um, after five days at home, feeling fine with the negative COVID test, I decided to go back to work. Still wearing a mask and doing all the precautions. Uh, but we're, we're doing regular testing of ourselves in the office. We've been doing that right along uh, because we see people and we think we should know if we're asymptomatic infected. And my regular test, uh, almost a week after my first test, that one came back positive. Well, crap, I've got it. So I took myself out of work again and kept myself out of work until I had two consecutive negative tests, which took about 10 days. Uh, after my positive test. But at no time after that initial couple of days did I feel unwell. And if it were not the fact that we're in the middle of this crisis, I might not have even noted uh, those couple of days. Certainly it would not have kept me out of work. Afterwards, since that time, I felt fine. Uh, with, with some of the data coming in, I've, I've done some antibody testing. I still have antibodies now. I'm six months out. I hope to have antibodies for a while yet but I will be getting the vaccine when it becomes available. I did an echocardiogram on myself. Well, I had an echocardiogram done a couple of weeks ago. My ejection fraction is down from what it was. It's down about 10% lower than it used to be, but I feel fine. So maybe that's a, it's a subjective test, so maybe, maybe it's in the air. I'm not going to go and get an MRI of my heart, but an MRI of my heart might have some effect. And other than that, um, I feel absolutely fine ever since. Uh, but it's, you know, it's disconcerting. I, I worried about my family. We tested them. Fortunately, none of them seem to get it from me, which is remarkable because you see so often entire families get taken with it. Some of my patients were annoyed with me over the fact that I had uh, exposed them to COVID. I don't think anybody left me over it, but they gave me the gears a little bit over it uh, when they saw me later on. You know, it, it, 
I'm, I'm grateful that I had a, a good experience because in my age group, uh, if you're diagnosed with COVID, if you test positive, 3.5% of us die. So about one in 30 people in their mid-60s will die if they uh, are diagnosed with COVID. It's kind of high odds. We're going to take a one in 30 chance. As a survivor of COVID-19, in addition to the advice we're all giving to our patients about wearing masks, washing hands, social distancing, uh, avoiding uh, crowded, crowded events, et cetera. Is there any advice I'm missing? Is there any uh, other kind of advice that you've been giving your patients and that you'd like to give to our listeners today? You've got to hang in there. We're going to have this vaccine. We're going to start seeing it. So uh, we really, really don't want anyone to die now. So I, I'm sorry about Thanksgiving. I'm sorry about Christmas. I'm sorry about birthday parties. I have a grandson in Canada who was born last January. I have not laid eyes on him except through electronics. Uh, I want to hold him. I want to struggle with him. You know, I I have the same feelings as everyone else, but I'm not going to risk uh, going over there and perhaps, even though I think I'm immune, maybe taking the virus to him. Um, so please, just you just have to be careful. You just have to stop. I really think our schools are going to have to close shortly. I think the numbers are too high in the community. I think kids are going to have to go back to remote learning. Um, but we're, we're going to get through this. But we need to be disciplined. You know, we can we can win this war. Thank you for joining me today, Greg, and for you and for everyone listening. Happy holidays and safe holidays. Thank you. Thank you.